Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear J.P. Michael. And we had these horrified onlookers looking at this poor girl who was white as a sheet, spraying puke everywhere like something out of The Exorcist. That and more. But before that, I want to let everyone know to go to casper.com slash risk and use the promo code risk to save $50 off a purchase from Casper. Listen, People have written in to me and said, is it true? Are you lying? Are you exaggerating when you say that this Casper mattress that you have there, Kevin, in your own home, is the very best mattress you've ever had? I am not. This Casper mattress is the perfect amount of sink and the perfect amount of firmness. Because they avoid the commission-driven, inflated pricing that you get in most mattress dealing, you get this award-winning sleep surface for, you know, a very reasonable price. This is their own in-house sleek design. It's delivered in this small box where you're like, how did they do that? How did they fit that in there right to your house? The mattress industry has been revolutionized. An in-house team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam. Its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. Mattresses can cost well over $1,500, but Casper's $500 for twin, $750 for a fool, $850 for a queen, $950 for a king. And buying a Casper mattress is risk-free. You have a 100-night home trial. If you don't like it, they'll pick it up and refund. Time magazine named the Casper one of the best inventions of 2015. It is now the most awarded mattress of the decade and made right here in America. So you'll get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash risk and using the promo code RISK. That's casper.com slash risk, and use the promo code RISK. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is John Kennedy behind me now, and we are calling today's episode Love Sick. These are two 
big stories about romantic, intimate relationships that became rather challenging. I mean, we're talking, I guess, if you talk about for better and for worse, (laughs) both of these stories go both places. We're going to start with a story that was shared uh, the last time we were in the Carborough Chapel Hill area at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. We like to go there each year. A young woman named Stephanie shared this story, and it was especially daring because she'd never shared a story in front of an audience like this before. Here she is now. This is Stephanie with a story we call Monster. So my first night with Dylan kicked off when he bought a round of shots and smiled at me a little bit longer than everyone else standing at the bar. I bolstered my confidence with a few more drinks and meandered my way over to him as he was watching a band play on stage. I wrapped my arm around him and said, sorry, is it okay if I lean on you? I'm a little drunk. He smiled back at me and pulled me a little closer and said, it's all right, I'm drunk too. So on our way out from the bar, my friends would later make fun of me because they said we completely ignored all of their attempts to say goodbye. They said, you were in your own little world. And we were. As we were walking down the street, I decided I was going to take my high heels off uh, because my feet were bleeding at that point in the evening. He picked me up and carried me on his back all the way down the sidewalk. Uh, We were both kind of bouncing between our friends' couches and parents' houses, so we found ourselves at the nearest hotel. I hadn't been with anyone for a long time, and I decided that night I was going to make my move, but I didn't really expect him to respond that well. He told me while we were in the hotel that he'd liked me since a night in the winter uh, when my best friend had dragged me out reluctantly in the middle of a snowstorm to go see his band play. I remembered that night because I was tired and grumpy and I just didn't want to go out. But we went and he sat with us that night and had a couple beers. And here we were a few months later, smiling and laughing and getting to know each other with the curtains drawn and trying to ignore the sounds of a bunch of cheerleaders uh, down the hall in town for a convention. He was sweet and funny, which doesn't sound like a lot to say for a person until you've been with people that lack those qualities. I'd kind of gotten more used to being with someone like a guy named Gabe who failed to tell me our last night together that a few hours before I came over to his house, he had actually proposed to the other girl he was seeing. Uh, When she expressed concern about me, he said, oh, don't worry about it, Stephanie. She's nice, but she's not marriage material. With Dylan, it was different. I felt euphoric. I felt 
like a 15-year-old with a crush again with butterflies in my stomach. I couldn't stop smiling when I told my therapist about him. (laughs) I had always sort of grown up trying to stay in the background and avoiding people's attention. I was a serious, weird little queer kid growing up in a Midwestern evangelical Christian environment. So even before I had words to put to my desire to be with more than just men, I had the feeling that all of my thoughts and my instincts somehow led to sin. So I'd gotten used to the idea that being intimate with someone was somehow wrong. And even after I left home and gone to college, there was a part of me that hadn't been able to get rid of that feeling. And I think that kind of reflected in the relationships that I chose. Uh, But with Dylan, he got past my fears and my mistrusts. He was the kind of guy that took his grandfather to lunch every week and made sure to tip the servers extra because he knew that his grandfather would give them a hard time. Uh, (laughs) We were together for about four months by the time he moved into his new house, and we started spending all of our time together. He gave me a key to the house, and I was there about as often as all the residents. We got to the point where every weekend was just an endless blur of bands and whiskey and hanging out at the practice space. Uh, And I found that those late nights led me to open up to not just him, but to all the other people in our social circle that I'd always been a little too shy to talk to. I remember talking to my therapist one day and confessing to her that I was afraid that if I ever got past the point of just niceties and opening up to people, if they saw the neediness and the cynicism and the weirdness inside me, that they wouldn't want to be with me anymore. And my therapist looked at me and she said, well, I think I know you pretty well, and I like you. I found the same thing happening with Dylan. Uh, He was considerate to me uh, every time I didn't expect it. I remember I came home from a week-long vacation, and he picked me up at the airport, even though he was sick and dozy on cold mints. It felt right when... I thought of home, his was the first face that I thought of. We spent this amazing Sunday together at the end of the summer where he took me to his childhood neighborhood and we saw the pool where he spent every summer swimming, the pizza place where his family had ordered pizza every Saturday night, and he took me to this bridge where he and his best friend had slapped up a band sticker. He asked if he could take a picture of me, and I felt kind of shy. I hadn't really thought up until that moment about how much of a focus I'd been in his life, but there he was 
standing and waiting patiently while I took some time to pose and smile. We went back to his place um, several rounds of sex later. (laughs) I woke up from a brief nap with my head on his chest and I drooled a little bit on him and (laughs) was disgusted. (laughs) He took it all in stride. He didn't care. He just smiled and didn't even bother to wipe it off. We were curled up together. It always seemed to be touching. And he turned to me and said, you know, yesterday when I was so stressed about my job and couldn't hang out, I really thought we were going to get into a fight, and you were so cool about it. You are always just so cool about everything. And he made me feel cool. We'd been together for four months at that point, and even though we hadn't said it to each other, I felt like I kind of knew what was coming next, and I knew that I loved him, too. He turned his head to face me, So there was a little bit of distance between us, but not that much. And he said, I had this feeling the other day. It was a feeling I get right before I'm ready to end a relationship. And I backed away from him a little bit more. Said, wait, what? What do you mean you want to break up with me? His tone was calm and measured as he tried to soothe my worries. He said, no, I just, I just wanted you to know so you can be ready. I was not calm when I responded. (laughs) I said, well, how soon are you thinking? Should I be planning my birthday around this? I couldn't really believe that we were getting into a fight. We never fought. We were always happy and open together. I had no idea where it was coming from. And I felt cold. And I didn't know if it was suddenly because the sweat was drying on my body or if it was the words that he was saying. I felt like I couldn't really respond to what he was saying. But by the end of that evening, the hypothetical discussion about our breakup had become real. We were over. Uh, He asked me to stay one last night, and I remember being just curled up into my hoodie, in bed, not being able to sleep. I felt like my perfect relationship had somehow moved into a weird, dramatic movie, and I was in a role I hadn't tried out for. And we even had a soundtrack, courtesy of a drunk friend on the front porch playing country music on his phone. (laughs) A week later, I was back at Dylan's house uh, for an after-party that he insisted I be at. He didn't want things to be weird between us. By the end of the night, I was a little bit drunk, so I asked if I could just pass out in his room for a while. told him when he was ready to sleep, I'd move. He came upstairs, and I asked, sadly resigned, if we could be together just one more time. He said he didn't think that was a good idea. 
but by the next morning, wordlessly, without kissing, we had sex. Where everything before had felt so natural and sweet and connecting, I felt more alone than I'd been with someone else. After that, we tried to hang out and things just kept getting weirder. I found myself drinking more and more as our interactions became more strained. I just wanted to go back to the point in our relationship where he saw me and knew me and liked me. But I felt like we were just getting further from that. We still slept together, but we fought. We slept with each other's friends. A year later, he finally ended things between us as another night ended in sex and tears. We decided to share custody of our friends uh, because neither of us were willing to give them up at that point. So we moved into kind of an amiable but distant relationship. Then came the night of his new band's record release party. Two years after we'd been together, uh, and I still felt nervous, but I was determined to go to support my friends. It took me a long time that night to finally get comfortable. Uh, I was wasted. I had gin and beer and whiskey and more whiskey, and things felt fine. I laughed and danced and drank with everyone. I made new friends. I even made it back to Dylan's house for an after party. I remember sitting in his living room, having a beer, and the next thing I knew, I was on the floor, and all I could think about was the smell, which was like walking around the zoo on a hot day. I opened my eyes, and I didn't recognize the room that I was in, but I recognized the furniture. I looked around, and I realized I was in Dylan's room. He was not. My dress was damp, like it had been soaking up some liquid for a while. And on his perfectly polished coffee table was the largest pile of shit I had ever seen. I was horrified. I had no idea how I'd come to be there or how the shit had come to be there. (laughs) A brief text conversation with Dylan while he was at work cleared up the mysteries too fast even as my mind refused to reassemble anything from the previous night. I said, well, I seem to be in your room. He said, yeah. I got back to my room. The shit was there. (laughs) You were a mess. You cried and peed on yourself. And you threw up on me trying to get to the trash can. I was horrified. I'd been plenty drunk before, but never so drunk that I couldn't find a bathroom. I could only think to respond, oh my god, I'm so sorry, before putting my phone away for a response that I knew wasn't coming. His roommate, who had invited me back to the house, helped me find cleaning supplies, and I kept waiting for him to be disgusted, but instead he was calm and patient and held me while I cried. 
and told me it was going to be okay. When I went home, I refused to talk to my roommate or tell her anything about it. I was horrified. I wasn't just the specter of the worst relationship ever. I was this monster, this gross, messy, needy thing that I'd always knew was inside me and I hated. I knew I was going to lose everyone. There was no way people could love someone that disgusting, that messy. I certainly didn't. That night, the text messages started to come in. Dude, pick up your phone. Want to come over? Baby girl, you need to stop feeling this way and stop hiding. Let's come over. I was so surprised. Instead of condemnation and disgust, what all I was getting from these people were kindness and concern and stringent orders to come over to their house. I was terrified when I went to their house and we went to a bar. Dylan was there. We didn't talk. I couldn't look at him. But everyone else acted normal. They were sweet. I was never without a drink, even though I didn't really want one. They chain-smoked with me through my shame. I found after that night that I didn't necessarily have to stop drinking, but I had to start looking at why I was drinking. I never got a response to my apology from Dylan, but I wasn't really expecting one. But I found that I didn't lose anyone else. And I was shocked that even though Dylan didn't have to forgive me, I found that I could move past this monster shitting in the dark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I found that sometimes you can reveal the worst parts of yourself to people and they'll still love you. Thank you. This is Mike Snow behind me now, and we just heard from Stephanie in Carborough, North Carolina. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. If you don't know, 
Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service for every geek and gamer and lovers of pop culture gear. For less than $20 a month, you get four to eight items that include licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, toys, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on any new subscription. Loot Crate is more than just a subscription service. It's an entire community of fans that share their love for this fun stuff. They interact with one another around the unboxing of each month's crate, and they guarantee 40 or more dollars in value in every crate. Sometimes it's a lot more. Every month there's a different theme. All the items are curated around that theme. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, many more. Now, join us as we celebrate the futuristic. We've packed July's crate with items from some of pop culture's favorite prognostications of science in the future. Look toward tomorrow with items from Rick and Morty, Futurama, Star Trek, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, and uh, I think I already said Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> including a model, a figure, and don't forget the monthly tea and pin. Remember, you only have until the 19th of July at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it, it's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk, that's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk, and enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription today. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from someone currently living across the pond in Britain. Oh my gosh. It, it, buckle your seatbelt, folks. <laughs> this is a long one, and it's a humdinger, too. It was a real joy working with J.P. Michael on this story. You will hear it's rather detailed, and he had never done anything like this before either, but man, he really brought a lot of intelligence and heart and soul to the table here. Here he is now. It's J.P. Michael with a story we call A Hard Landing. This is a story about meeting somebody who completely changed my life. The story begins in January of 2013. I was 24 and had just moved to New York City for work. I barely knew anybody in the city, and it quickly turned out that my new job was a bit of a bust. When I moved over, I thought that I was going to be leading the charge for my company into the North American markets. But then when I arrived, things were very different. The guy I was there to work for was actually being forced out of the company, and the work I was supposed to be doing wasn't going to be happening. So I had no boss, no co-workers. I actually ended up working from my apartment every day, reporting back to London and mainly staring at spreadsheets. So 
wasn't quite as exciting as I was hoping it would be and didn't have very many connections in the city as a result. So then when I met this girl, Claire, through online dating, it was absolutely fantastic. She was tall, blonde, a few years younger than me, but super smart. She was studying to be a lawyer and had been interning at the UN. One of the first things I noticed about her was that she had this kind of look in her eye, like she could see right through that protective layer of BS that people tend to build up around themselves. So for better or for worse, you had no choice but to show yourself as you really were. One of the things that really made me start to appreciate her as a person was um, I was you know, feeling a little bit down about the fact that things hadn't worked out the way I wanted to at work. But she was sort of a cheerleader for me. She was really driving me to look for alternative jobs. She was tapping her network to try and find people that had jobs that might have visas with them. And so she was really, really trying to help me out on that front. We would have these sort of long and kind of deeply analytical intellectual conversations with each other. So I'd never met anybody like Claire before, but when you would talk to her, you could see how intently she was listening to the things that you were saying, and she was really pulling them apart and analysing them, and she would be very, very challenging in terms of the ideas that you were sharing, and it meant that you could have these conversations that would take you to these sort of weird and wonderful places that you wouldn't normally have gotten to just by yourself. So we had this very deep and stimulating intellectual connection that I thought was really quite special. Claire and I very quickly connected, and looking back I think there are two key reasons for this. The first is that she seemed to have this genuine drive that I should try to change as a person, and I think that often that's something that can have a selfish motive behind it, that the person wants to change you into the person that they want you to be. But in Claire's case it seemed like she genuinely wanted me to better myself, so that I could get the things that I wanted to out of life. I think she saw in me a lot of potential that was untapped because I just lacked self-belief. She would say, look, you're so smart, but you just don't even realise it. She was worried that I would set my sights too low in life, and so she was always pushing me to dream bigger and reach for the stars, I guess. So Claire was a really amazing and very important source of support for me when I was so far away from home. The second area where I felt this immediate bond was our shared sense of humour. So I'm very much a fan of that kind of comedy where you're laughing so hard that it actually hurts. And the pain that you're feeling isn't just physical, you're feeling a piece of it inside you, almost in your soul, because you're ashamed of the thing that you're laughing at. It's that kind of humour that almost feels like a guilty pleasure. So Claire and I would spend a lot of time trading absolutely disgusting jokes and horrifying insults back and forth, and we would just be dying with laughter. Now given that work was looking like a dead end, I wasn't sure how long I'd be in the city for, so I wasn't necessarily on the lookout for a serious relationship. But all the same, I was really, really pleased to have found this connection. For the next few months, Claire and I spent a lot of time together, hanging out mainly in front of the TV. It didn't take very long at all for me to discover that having no idea how basketball works is no obstacle to a game becoming an absolute matter of life and death, where you find yourself screaming at the TV. I also soon discovered that if we were lucky enough to be in front of a TV on a Saturday afternoon, then we might catch a solid three or four hours of a show called My Cat From Hell, hosted by a man who claimed to be called Jackson Galaxy. But what was important wasn't the unbelievably high calibre of the on-screen entertainment. It was actually the conversation that was going on at the same time. 
which felt very open and direct and authentic, which was really in stark contrast to some of the relationships that I'd experienced up until that point in my life. But then Claire started to get sick. It started with stomach problems. She was having trouble keeping her food down. And this obviously was not at all pleasant for Claire, but it also happened to be an experience that I got to be part of, as she lived in a tiny studio apartment with paper-thin bathroom walls. And in fact, Claire showed up the next day with a book, and she explained to me that this was an I'm sorry that you had to listen to me puking all night apology gift. And I was a little bit taken back by this because it was a really sweet gesture, but it seemed really unnecessary. And then she explained to me that as she had a Jewish mother, her sense of guilt was extremely well-developed. So I stopped asking questions and, of course, accepted the gift. Early on, it didn't seem like there was a particular cause for alarm. We figured it was probably just a stomach bug that would work itself out in a day or two. Unfortunately, we were extremely wrong about this. It wasn't long before the excruciating abdominal pain started and then the visits to the emergency room. What followed was weeks and weeks of the doctors trying various diagnostic procedures. Claire became intimately acquainted with a wide variety of photographic equipment, and I can tell you from personal experience that that's really not pleasant at all. So she had the whole camera crew going up there, she was being poked and prodded like a lab rat, and they just didn't seem to be getting anywhere. It actually got to the point where there would be groups of doctors and medical students coming into Gorgata because she was the latest puzzle that nobody could solve. It really started to feel like it was some kind of game to them. They would throw out these theories, you know, potential diagnoses, and we would get our hopes up that finally they might have figured this thing out. And then of course, once they checked into it, they would realize that actually they were way off. So we were riding this roller coaster where, again and again, we would see light at the end of the tunnel, and then our hopes would just be crushed. Eventually it got to the point where the doctors said, look, the best idea we can come up with is to prescribe this really powerful antibiotic to you. I think it was called Zyfaxin. And they said, this will clean out all of the bacteria in your system, and so if there's anything bad in there, we'll get it, and we'll reset everything. So it really seemed like they had no idea if it was really going to work, but we didn't really have a lot of options. And so Claire started to take the medicine. And at first, absolutely nothing happened. But then, slowly but surely, the pain began to subside. And then Claire was vomiting a little bit less. It seemed like finally, something was working. And Claire might actually be okay. The Diagnostic Magical Mystery Tour had finally reached its end. A few days later, Claire tells me that the doctors had been running some follow-up tests, and they'd seen something else, something new, and that thing was evidence of cancer. Claire's immediate reaction to discovering this was that the best course of action would be to run home and devour the entire contents of her medicine cabinet. Fortunately, I was able to talk her down as far as going out and getting absolutely outrageously drunk. Once we'd recovered from the hangover from hell, unfortunately the bad news just kept coming. The doctors still didn't know what was wrong exactly. What they did know was that if the symptoms continued to progress at the same rate, and they couldn't diagnose and treat Claire, 
then it was very unlikely that she would live to see her 22nd birthday. Sir Claire and I had many long, emotional conversations about what the best thing to do was in light of the possibility that maybe she didn't have that much time left. I remember during those conversations her saying, look, I don't want to become one of these people who goes on YouTube and video logs about it. I don't want to write a blog about this. I just wish this wasn't happening and I just want to get on with my life for as long as I can. And after that, it wasn't that much longer before the neurological symptoms started. She began to have seizures where her whole body would stiffen and she would shake and the eyes would roll back in her head. She began to have irrational behaviour and she would get aggressive. And then ultimately it progressed to the stage where she was having suicidal ideation as well. Claire told me on several occasions that she'd actually flushed her medication down the toilet because she was worried about what she might do if it was in the apartment. There were lots of times where I had to take Claire down to the emergency room. One that really sticks in my mind was the time that I was at her place and she started feeling absolutely awful. And so we decided we were going to take her down to the ER. As we got out onto 46th Street, which is a pretty crowded street in Midtown Manhattan, she began to projectile vomit all over the place. It was like a fountain, and we had these horrified onlookers looking at this poor girl who was white as a sheet, spraying puke everywhere like something out of The Exorcist. And we had people who were sort of dodging it whilst trying to come over and help us and say, oh my God, do you need a ambulance? And we said, no, but if you can get us into a cab, that would be amazing. Claire and I spent a lot of time in the hospital together. She was always deeply frustrated with the fact that they still hadn't yet managed to figure out what was wrong with her. And so she would often be wanting to leave and I'd be doing my best to persuade her that she needed to stay so that we could really get to the bottom of things. One of the things that really amazed me about Claire's situation was the lack of support that she seemed to have from her friends and family. Claire's father was actually in his 80s and was recovering from open heart surgery. And so her parents seemed to be rather preoccupied with that and just weren't around. Early on, I remember one of her friends showing up whilst I was in the ward, and she just looked like she really didn't want to be there, like it was a massive inconvenience for her. So I really took it upon myself to step in there and try my best to give Claire the support that she so desperately needed. It was the least that I could do, given how helpful that she tried to be to me, and I still valued her friendship and companionship, even if the circumstances weren't ideal. The whole time that I was doing my best to look after her, she was still doing her best to try and look after me too. And I really appreciated that. Claire just wasn't the type of person that was going to let cancer stand in her way when she felt that there was a job that desperately needed to be done. Throughout all of this, I was trying so hard to maintain a British stiff upper lip in the hope that Claire wouldn't pick up on the fact that I was actually absolutely terrified. This became practically impossible by the time we were dealing with surgeries, code blues, and then stays in the ICU. The last thing that Claire needed in the situation was for me to go to pieces. I also didn't want her realizing that the person she used to be was rapidly disappearing. But the truth was that I was being crushed, both by the fear of losing somebody so horribly, but also by the pressure of being a primary carer in a society that I wasn't even close to understanding. Having grown up under the socialistic tyranny of universal healthcare in Europe, where they deny you the basic freedom to pay extortionate amounts of money for basic healthcare, the US system just isn't making any sense to me. 
I'm trying really hard to help Claire navigate her treatment, but I always have in the back of my head this thought that I'm fucking everything up, and that ultimately, I'm going to fail to avert what was feeling increasingly inevitable in the situation. Back at the very start, I said that this was a story about somebody who completely changed my life. Well, actually, it's a story about two people, and it's time for us to meet the second. Emma was Claire's best friend. They'd gone to school together back in Boston. The first time I met Emma was in the ward of NYU Hospital. She'd come down to visit Claire for the weekend, but that Saturday, as we often did, we'd ended up at the ER, so she came to meet us down at the hospital. Emma was a very short, curvy, dark-haired girl. It was very charming and bubbly, and I remember that when she arrived, she practically bounded into the room. She had with her this assortment of food and drink and other supplies that she brought along for Claire. And I remember thinking to myself, thank God, finally the cavalry's here. But it's important to be aware of the fact that there was another side to Emma. She'd had a difficult past. As a teenager, she'd had issues with her mental health and then drug addiction. And that eventually led to her being kicked out by her family. She then turned to the prostitution business to support herself and finance her college degree. But more recently, she had moved on from that and was doing much better on all fronts. But the key thing is that during that very dark period in Emma's life where even her own family wasn't there for her, Claire had been there and she'd been a rock that she could rely on. And the thing about Claire's illness was that it meant that she couldn't continue to play that role in Emma's life. She couldn't offer that same level of support that she'd become very much dependent on. And Emma did not handle this at all well. In fact, she completely and utterly lost it. Claire showed me some of the messages that Emma was sending, and it was clear that she was feeling a very intense sense of betrayal and abandonment. She was also saying unpleasant things like she was ashamed of Claire and the way she was behaving and what a poor friend she was. This back and forth was continuing for a period of weeks, I think. And Claire was telling me that, yeah, it was getting worse. Things were getting more aggressive and out of control over time. Eventually, Emma's aggression progressed beyond just words. On another Saturday afternoon spent in the ER, I'm standing next to Claire's bed and I notice that there's something funny about her wrist. And I reach out and I grab her arm so that I can pull it closer and get a better look. And she's trying to squirm away so that I can't see. But I do, and what is there is a series of red lines carved into the flesh of her wrist. And I asked her, what happened? Where did this come from? And she told me. And she said she'd been at her apartment and Emma had shown up and she had her own key to the place she could let herself in. And when she arrived, she was in a total rage. Maybe she was on drugs or something like that. But she got in there and she just unloaded this horrific tirade of abuse on her. She was dredging up any painful personal stuff that she could from from the past that she confided in Emma about and turning anything she could into a weapon to basically hurt Claire as much as she could. 
eventually it got to the point where she was just standing over Claire who was in tears and telling her that she was a completely worthless human being, a terrible friend and she just had no value as a person and then she said, you know what, you should just, you should just kill yourself, you should do the world a favour. And at this point she reached over to the kitchen counter and pulled a knife from the block and then she slashed Claire's wrist, handed her the blade and told her to finish the job. And then Emma left. Claire was sat alone on the floor of her apartment in cascades of, of tears, slashing her own wrist. Eventually, she stopped and she got to a hospital and fortunately, the cuts weren't too bad. As she was telling me that, I could just feel the eyes bulging in my head and probably my jaw dropping as well. I was just really struggling to find some words that might offer a degree of comfort to Claire. And I remember saying that whilst Emma was Claire's friend, she should really not listen to the things that she'd been saying. She was clearly profoundly troubled. And I told her that she should do her best not to let this distract her from getting better. Claire told me that she'd already demanded that the key was returned. And I told her that that wasn't going to be enough. She needed to get the locks changed. Even if she got the key back, how was she going to know that Emma hadn't made a copy? A few days later, I'm sat working in my apartment and the phone rings. It's Claire. She says, look, I don't want to freak you out, but I just got back from the police station. So, of course, I immediately freak out internally. But then I ask her, okay, what's going on? She tells me that she got the key back, but it was in an envelope full of razor blades. She says that Emma's completely lost it and she's got no idea what she might do next. The police were going to speak to her that afternoon. And I asked her, did you get your locks changed yet? She says, no, she hasn't. And so I tell her to leave the apartment and come and stay with me until she does. Later that evening, Claire and I are hanging out at my place and her phone rings. When she picks up, she very quickly goes as white as a sheet. It's the staff at her building and they're reporting that there's been a break-in at her place. A neighbour had heard a lot of noise coming from her apartment and had phoned down to the front desk. When the door staff had gone upstairs to investigate, they had discovered that the entire place had been ransacked. We had absolutely no idea where Emma or any of her friends might be, so we decided the safest thing to do would be to wait until morning to go and inspect the damage. Now I'm an inherently cautious kind of guy, and I thought it was important that we could defend ourselves on the off chance that somebody came looking for Claire at my place. So I conducted an extremely thorough search of the entire apartment and quickly arrived at the conclusion that the most deadly item in my possession was a frying pan. And so we slept with that next to the bed that night. In the morning, I offered to call out of work so that I could accompany Claire to the apartment. But she didn't want me to miss any more work on her account and she said it would be fine as the cops and the building staff would be there with her. So she went there alone. When she arrived, she was greeted by a scene of total devastation. Just about everything in the apartment that could be knifed or smashed had been, and there was garbage strewn everywhere. This included, among other things, used tampons, dead rodents, and the pièce de résistance, human feces. She sent me a few choice pictures, and it really wasn't a pretty scene at all. And so Claire spent a lot of time there over the next few days, cleaning the place up with the help of her building staff. Eventually, it would get to the point where the only evidence remaining that there was ever a break-in were the really deep scratches that had been carved into the floorboards of the apartment. 
But Emma was still out there, and her campaign of harassment was continuing, with increasingly threatening messages now being sent to Claire from a burner phone. And on more than one occasion, Claire told me that she suspected that people had been in the apartment again. At this stage, I really had no idea what to think anymore, and things were really beginning to take their toll. Between dealing with work and looking after Claire, I was probably getting less than four hours sleep most nights, and I was always on edge that the phone was about to ring and bring even more bad news. The stress was beginning to affect me physically, my hair was going grey and it was thinning at the temples. I just couldn't fathom the extent to which the universe seemed to be willing to shit on one person. Contracting a rare illness at a young age is very unlucky, but it does happen. And having a friend with a shady past flip out and come after you is also extremely unlucky, but again, it happens to some people. But having both of those things happen to you at the same time... It's like being struck by lightning and eaten by a shark at the same time. Did stuff like that really happen to people? Well, what if the two horrendously unlucky things that Claire was going through weren't a coincidence? What if they were actually linked to each other? Just as I was thinking that the situation couldn't possibly spin any further out of control, I received what was probably the most shocking phone call of my entire life. It was Claire. She'd been at the apartment with the cops, who'd come over to do some follow-up on the break-in. One of the cops had noticed something. There were three bottles of soda out on the kitchen counter, and the seals were missing on all of the bottles, even though they were full. They began to check around, and sure enough, the seals were missing on just about every container in the apartment. The police took some of the containers away for testing, and just about everything in Claire's apartment was contaminated with heavy metals. When I heard this, I jumped onto Google, and I searched for heavy metal poisoning. Lo and behold, Claire's symptoms appeared on the screen in front of me. The second thing I searched for was heavy metal poisoning and cancer, and hits came up on the screen. Suddenly, it started to make sick, twisted sense. While it had never really added up for Emma to go after Claire so aggressively after she'd contracted such a serious illness, if you reversed the order of those two events, then a completely different picture began to emerge. What if Emma had actually relapsed and turned on Claire much earlier than anybody had realised? What if she was the reason that Claire was sick? What if she'd actually been poisoning her? And then I thought back to that time at the hospital, when Emma showed up with that ridiculous amount of food and drink with her. Finally, we had the right diagnosis. We got the contaminated items out of Claire's apartment and she could begin treatment. But unfortunately, a lot of the damage that heavy metals can cause to the human body isn't actually reversible. Also, while the police could bring in Emma for questioning, they didn't have enough evidence to actually charge her. This was ultimately too much for Claire to take. One afternoon, my phone buzzed, and it was a text message from Claire, and it said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. And I immediately tried to call her, and eventually I got through. The first thing I heard was the sound of the wind blowing, followed by absolutely inconsolable sobbing. She's not making an awful lot of sense and she keeps saying the same things over and over again. I can't keep doing this. It's over. She killed me. She fucking killed me. I managed to calm her down enough to ask a question. Where are you? Eventually, I get a response. She's on the edge of the Queensborough Bridge. This was a conversation that I was not at all prepared to handle. I'd never had to do anything approaching talking somebody down from the edge before. Unfortunately, I haven't had to since. But I knew that if I didn't figure this out fast, then something awful was about to happen. So I just kept her talking. 
I kept asking if we can meet up and talk about it. And while I have my phone in my left hand, I'm using my right hand to email Claire's mother to ask her to call her immediately. And then I email my friend Dan and ask him to call 911 and let them know that there's somebody threatening to jump off the Queensborough Bridge. After what was probably the longest couple of minutes of my life, Claire stops mid-sentence and tells me that I'm going to have to hold on. Somebody's calling her. It's her mother. After probably less than a minute, she comes back on the line and she is furious. You called my mom? You don't fucking talk to her. I tell her that I'm sorry, but I just didn't know what else to do. I again plead for her to get off the bridge and come and talk about it, and warn her that if she doesn't, then we're going to have to call the police. She really doesn't want the cops involved, so she finally agrees that she's going to come down. So I drop everything with work and rush to Claire's apartment to meet her. When I get there, she looks me dead in the eye and says, I wish I'd done it. This story ends after one more day and one last phone call. It was Claire and she's in a complete panic. She says, I took some pills from an old bottle and I've started feeling really awful and it's getting worse. I'm really worried that maybe Emma slipped something in there. We hightail it to Lennox Hill ER and this time we have my friend Dan along for the ride and also Claire's friend Ruth who had just a few days earlier moved back to New York. She seemed to be absolutely devastated by what was happening to Claire. When we arrive at Lennox Hill Emergency Room, I tell the staff on the front desk that we think that Claire may have ingested poison, and I quickly run through the whole story with Emma. The poor lady on the front desk totally freaks out and goes into overdrive to get Claire admitted. But while that's going on, the other nurse says to me out of earshot of everybody else, I'm really sorry, but I have to ask you this. Is there any mental health history? And I'm a little bit taken back by this, but I reply that no, there isn't as far as I'm aware. Once we get inside the ER, what seems to be the most senior doctor on duty comes to talk to us. We go through the whole story about the poisoning, the harassment, and the treatment that Claire has been receiving. She asks us for the names of the doctors and detectives who've been involved so that she can speak to them and get a better idea of what we're dealing with. Claire provides us information and then the doctor goes off to make phone calls. We're then asked to step out while the nurses get to work. After maybe about 10 minutes, that same doctor comes back and she silently motions for the three of us to move away from the curtained area. Once we're out of earshot, she tells us that she went and made the phone calls and the people on the other end of the phone didn't know what she was talking about. None of the individuals that Claire had named actually existed. And then she asks us if anybody has actually seen any cops. And I explained that there were break-ins and I saw the damage. But then she says, yeah, but did you actually talk to a cop after that? Before I can reply, we're interrupted. Claire shouts from behind us, I didn't authorize any of this. You shouldn't be talking about this. It's an active investigation and all of this is confidential. Look, I, I, I want to leave. I'm, I'm going to refuse treatment. She's up out of her bed and she's now standing in the middle of the ward in her gown. The doctor replies, I'm sorry, but you can't leave. You need to get back into bed. Claire challenges her. You don't have any legal basis to keep me here. I'm going to leave. As the words come out of her mouth, I'm suddenly aware that there's movement in my peripheral vision. Nurses and security are now silently sweeping in to surround Claire. Then the doctor says, If we think there's something wrong with you that might endanger you or others, then we can't let you leave. You need to get back into bed because if you try to leave, we're going to have to inject you with something that's going to make you feel all woozy and then handcuff you. But that will make it much harder for us to figure this all out. 
Eventually, the staff offer to move Claire to her private room to make her feel more comfortable, and after a while, she agrees. When we get into this room, we have company. There's a lady sat in the corner with a clipboard on her lap, and she's writing things down on it every once in a while. And from where I'm standing next to Claire's bed, I can read upside down that at the top of this clipboard is written, Suspected Paranoid Delusions. I really don't know what to think at this stage, but I do know that I have to try and give Claire a shot at avoiding the psych ward. So I ask if I can have a moment alone with Claire, and the hospital employee goes and stands outside the door guarding it, on the off chance that I was planning an impromptu jailbreak. I tell Claire that she needs to give the doctors some more information, a better explanation of what's been going on, because currently the story isn't checking out and they think that she's mentally ill. But she's quite firm that there's nothing more to share, and she says that the phone calls probably didn't check out because everything relating to the case against Emma is extremely confidential. After my conversation with Claire, I'm spending a lot of time walking backwards and forwards to the water cooler, because it provides a few minutes in which I can talk to the others to try and figure out what the hell is going on. When we get back from probably the third trip in 20 minutes, there is a hospital administrator stood in Claire's room, and she asks us, Are any of you related to the patients? We tell her no, we're just her friends. And she says, in that case, I'm going to have to ask you all to leave. And we get kicked out into the waiting room. We're not really sure what to do at this point. Dan goes outside to make some calls because there's no cell phone signal inside. And I was just left with Ruth, who I I didn't really know, but I was just talking to her about everything that was going on. I remember I was saying, this has been such a crazy week, I can't even begin to make sense of what's happening. It was only a few days ago that Claire was calling me and saying that she was stuck in ICU and there were no family members who could get to her and she was terrified that she wasn't going to get out again. As I was saying this, Ruth started to look confused. And then she said to me, wait, which night was that? And I thought for a second and said, I think that was on Thursday nights. The second that these words left my lips, I'd never seen all of the blood drain from somebody's face so quickly. She just said, but I was at her apartment on Thursday. We were in front of the TV smoking pot and eating pizza. And in that moment, this single little thread was cut loose. And I knew that if I started to pull on this, then an entire web was about to unravel. I remember I just leapt out of my seat without saying anything to Ruth and ran straight out to the sidewalk because I needed to get cell phone signal and I needed to phone Claire's mum. I was hyperventilating and shaking and I remember that I was struggling to dial the number because my fingers were shaking so much. So when I got through, I immediately began bombarding this poor woman with questions, but I really, really needed answers. I started checking facts one by one and with very few exceptions, they don't check out at all. Claire's mother knew about the break-in, but had only learnt about it a few days before. She'd actually texted me earlier that week to check in because she hadn't heard from Claire in a while. And in my response, I alluded to some of the things that had been going on. It was only after this that Claire had actually mentioned anything to her. The doctors had been in contact with Claire's mother that day, so she was very aware that there was something really strange going on. But crucially, she had absolutely no knowledge of the cancer diagnosis, the poisoning, or any of the treatment and surgeries. And this was unbelievably confusing, because I'd received text messages sent from her phone that mentioned many of those things. There were still so many unanswered questions, but the conversation did confirm two things. 
Claire wasn't imagining this. She was faking. And I was the intended audience of her hoax. Once I was done, I was walking back inside to go and talk to the doctor, and I received a text message from Claire. It said, don't worry, the police are here now and it's all getting sorted out. You're going to be let back in soon. I get there to talk to the doctor and say, I just received this message and I'm pretty sure that it's not true. And she told me, no, it wasn't. There were no police. Then I said, well, look, for what it's worth, I don't think she's delusional. I think this is all a massive hoax that she's been using to manipulate me. And the doctor thanked me for sharing the information, but said it was now out of her hands. Claire was going to be held for the next three days and evaluated by the psychiatric team. So I walked back outside and Ruth and Dan asked me, what are we going to do now? And it didn't take us very long to realise that there was only one sensible option at a time like this. Go to a bar and try very hard to drink the place dry. As we're in the cab going down Lexington Avenue, my phone rings. It's Claire. She's telling me the same story that was in the text message. I cut across her and say, look, we've already left the hospital. We know exactly what's going on. And if you want to get out, you're going to have to start telling the truth. And then I hung up and switched off the phone. Over the next few days, I spent a lot of time, including many of the hours when I should have been sleeping, picking apart the last three months. What I was able to figure out made my blood run cold. Claire had most likely been deliberately overdosing on her anxiety medication in order to poison herself and fake symptoms. More disturbing than that, she'd been cutting herself in order to fake surgical scars. Early on, I would often ask why her parents weren't more involved. Then she came back from a visit home sporting a huge black eye, which in retrospect I guess was probably just makeup. But in any case, it was more than sufficient to stop me from asking that question anymore. On the occasions that her mother was in the city visiting, she would steal her mother's phone and use it to send fake health updates to me, claiming that treatment or surgery was underway. And as for the appointments that I collected her from, she was probably just going down to the hospital and sitting in their lobby waiting for me. Along the way, she'd acted out dozens of phone conversations with cops and doctors, with nobody at the other end of the line. And what about Emma's campaign of harassment? Well, that was relatively simple to fake. Claire simply entered her own phone number into her phone book and labelled it as being Emma. She could then send threats to herself and just delete the outbound messages to be left with an unbroken stream of harassment that looked like it was coming from Emma. And as for the break-in... Claire faked the phone call from the doorman, went home, trashed the place just enough for a decent photo shoot, and then sent me the pictures. A question that really needs to be answered is, what was the deal with Emma? Well, firstly, all of that stuff about her difficult past, that is, as far as I'm aware, actually true. So when we were really worried about how far things might escalate and what might possibly happen to Claire, we actually went looking around online and we managed to find an old online advert from when she was a call girl, for example. I did think about contacting Emma and trying to understand what had happened, but I was worried that maybe that might be opening a can of worms and inviting more drama that I really just didn't want to deal with. As for all the other stuff, well, I don't know for sure, but my best guess is that the two of them did fall out with each other. But I think the real reason for that was that Emma knew about Claire's hoax and she didn't agree with it at all. Claire then used the relapse as a cover story that also conveniently discredited Emma in case she tried to intervene. 
She then developed this story as a secondary means of keeping me under pressure and under control. She was just smart enough to scour WebMD until she found a diagnosis that connected the two parallel threads of her lie and shored the whole story up. Probably the most important question of all is, why did Claire even do any of this? Well, back at the beginning of the story I mentioned that I wasn't really looking for a serious relationship because I didn't know if I'd be in the country for long. And I was transparent about this with Claire. Her response was to tell me that this was okay and she understood that I wasn't really in a position to commit to something. And then she spent the next three months pretending to be dying. While Claire was in the psych ward, she called me several times. She was desperately trying to find a way to salvage her hoax and to lie her way out of the corner that she was now backed into. I debunked everything that she was telling me, but she would not come clean. She just would not stop lying. Eventually, I decided that enough was enough. I wasn't taking any more of this, and I blocked the numbers that she was calling from. I then focused my attention on Claire's parents. I tried to explain everything that had gone on in as much detail as possible, in the hope that they would pass this information on to the doctors who might find it diagnostically useful. I later learned from Ruth that they had in fact taken Claire out of hospital as quickly as they could. They were worried that Claire's friends would ostracize her, so they were downplaying the whole incident, and also actively trying to discredit me. When I heard this, it was the last straw. I cut all contact and I never saw Claire or any of her family again. To this day, I have no idea if she got the help that she needed, or if anybody else has fallen victim to what I was put through. In the aftermath, I was initially just glad that things didn't go any further. Fortunately, I never came home to find a bunny boiling on the stove, which I was particularly thankful for given that I didn't own a pet rabbit. I thought I had my life back, but then I quickly realized that I had changed. I'd just grown accustomed to living in a state of constant crisis, always dealing with matters of life and death. Through that, I had somehow forgotten how to deal with the mundanity of regular life. I remember going for a walk in Central Park on this really beautiful day. Everybody was out enjoying the sunshine, and I just felt like an outsider, because participating in a scene like this had just become an alien concept to me. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I had literally forgotten how to enjoy a walk in the park because I'd just spent three months living in a universe where there was just no space for anything like that. I almost wondered if this was what it was like to get out of prison, for example, where you are confronted with a reality that just no longer makes the kind of intuitive and natural sense that it once did, and you're forced to actually relearn everything from scratch. Claire and I had so many long and emotional conversations about mortality. And I had prayed with all of my might for her to be okay, and I am not religious in the slightest. Towards the end, I was even trying to work out what her funeral might be like. What was I going to say? And how was I going to handle being there with all of these people who'd failed to support her as she'd stared death in the face? I spent a lot of time grappling with the notion that my sense of integrity, my unwillingness to abandon someone who really needed my help, have been used as a weapon against me. When your virtues become the rope that is used to hang you with, it's so tough, because your instinct for self-preservation kicks in, and it starts telling you that they're not virtues, 
their weaknesses. And I wish I could say that I still wouldn't think twice before going to someone's aid. But unfortunately, at least for now, I'm not sure that's actually true. I still don't trust people the same way that I used to, but I'm glad to say that I have made real progress. And I have hope that maybe someday I'll get there. I've often wondered if I should have seen through the hoax in spite of Claire's absolutely Oscar-worthy performance. There were definitely times when things weren't adding up, and I knew in my gut that something wasn't quite right, but I never even came close to suspecting the full extent of what was actually going on. It just never occurred to me that someone in my life could be capable of such a thing, because it was so far outside of my own frame of reference on what constitutes reasonable behaviour. So I guess the moral of the story, if there is one, is that even if you wouldn't dream of doing something in a million years, be aware that someone else still might, and they could very well be standing right in front of you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Ray LaMontagne behind me now. And listen, I know that there will be some fans saying, oh, you didn't give us enough aftercare after that story. So rest assured, if you're careful, you can probably have a happy, healthy relationship with a person who won't uh, boil a bunny on your stove. Probably. Now, thanks again to Loot Crate, the monthly subscription box for geeks, gamers, and pop culture nerds. You can join us as we celebrate the futuristic this month. We've packed July's crate with items from some of pop culture's favorite prognostications of science in the future. Look towards tomorrow with items from Rick and Morty, Futurama, Star Trek, Mega Man, Valiant Comics, and more a model, a figure, don't forget the monthly tea and pin. You only have until the 19th of July at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash risk. That's L-O-O-T-C-R-A-T-E dot com slash risk and enter the code risk to save $3 on your new subscription today. I'm now going to read the places that Risk is coming next on July 8th. 
We're in San Francisco, California. Come on out. On July 27th, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On July 30th, we're at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. On August 5th, we are in Toronto, Canada. We're still taking pitches for that Toronto. The theme is disaster. You can pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Now, on August 6th, the next night, we are in Montreal. Now, Montreal, we weren't able to confirm that date for a while there, but now we can confirm. August 6th, we are in Montreal. The theme that night is myths. Pitch us, folks. If you live in Montreal or you know anyone else who lives there and might have a fantastic story to share with us, go to risk-show.com slash submissions and use that word myth or myths to, you know, start brainstorming on a good story you might have to share with us. Remember, if you go to risk-show.com slash tour, you can always find out where we're appearing next. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Don't forget that Risk is listener supported. If you want to help us keep doing what we do, go to the support us page at risk-show.com. We hugely appreciate the help from our fans. And if you would like to learn about storytelling, we teach it too at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.